Hello everyone and welcome to the 16th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Mattias Fridström and have spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. In this 16th episode, I'm extremely happy to welcome back Parti Kandapan from Infinera. One of the things we've seen in other areas when we compare is on the on the server side and on the switch side, we could see that the hyperscalers suddenly started to almost build their own equipment. And for some years, we believed that they would start to build their own optical gear, but that hasn't happened so far, except for the Voyager box that, that Facebook did in some way. Uh, do you think they will ever think about this or do you feel that they are now happy with the way that the optical industry has developed and, and they will therefore work with you? Uh, to continue to develop it instead of replacing you? Yeah, I, I, I think um, that there are, there are multiple aspects to this. One, there are a very small set of hyperscalers who actually go and build everything on their own, maybe two or three people who build on their own. I think it's a question of value for money. They have a large uh, volume, and therefore, if we can't, we as vendors can't show uh, value to them they're going to go try and make it on their own. But the moment they realize that our cost, uh, and it's not just, you know, it's the innovation, uh, they're, they're going to look back. And even when they build their own switches, so on, if you take a look at uh, all the hyperscalers, they don't build their own CPU chips, though they are now beginning to start a look at, uh, you know, tens of machines, AI engines, so on. But that's only because there aren't too many players who build it. So they they happily buy their CPUs from Intel or AMD or MIPS. They buy their uh, switches from Broadcom. And once Cisco tries to come up with this one chip type of thing, I think they are you are beginning to see them eager to leverage that from Cisco so on. So I think you are already seeing uh, hyperscalers who dip their toe into trying to build the basic components. I think they will stay away from the basic components because the innovation pays uh, requires a lot of investment, and it doesn't behoove them to do that. But putting the boxes together, I think they will find means of trying to reduce. And it may not be that they would do it themselves. What we have noticed is uh, they do the design spec. You know, if you look at Voyager uh, or Cassini, it's not Tip or Facebook building on its own, but rather they drive the design specs. But it's more. A systems design that still leverages pluggable optics or optical engines from somebody else. Uh, so yes, I think I think you will see more and more of reference designs, and you will see the actons and others come on in, and you know the edge cores. Uh, you've already seen that in DCSG uh, type of applications where they come in. Yeah. So ourselves and our competitors, I think we will be innovating more on the fundamentals of the optics, the algorithms, the DSP engines, and so on. Uh, but a lot of it is going to get commoditized. That's going to be, yeah. uh, we don't like it. <laughs> we, we would love it's all done by us, but that's that's going to be the reality. And, and that's part of why you are seeing most of us transitioning from these large systems to more of a, you know, I won't call it pizza box, but near pizza box type of uh, designs, because I think the value is in the engine rather than the sheet metal package that we deliver to you. 
on a side note on that one, I know you have your office in Sunnyvale, which is in sort of yeah. very close to the San Francisco area, and there's loads of companies in that area. How do you attract people that are coming out of university? How how do you get them to work for Infineer and not to work for Google or someone else? You know, is that easy? <laughs> the short answer is yes. We have been able to attract personnel, but but I I, I see a question, and the truth is. We have lost uh, a significant set of people, and the uh, if you if you if you go to most of the ICPs, there are a significant number of ex Infinera employees, people from my team uh, on those organizations running their optical networks. You could look at this as a pain point. Uh, you could look at this as a point of pride. Yep. Uh, and I've told uh, our organization we should look at this as a, as a point of pride. The poaching attrition, uh, people looking for greener pastures, that's always been in our industry. Uh, and, and you know, clearly uh, none of us can compete with the hyperscalers in terms of uh, the attractiveness of a job. Uh, but you would be surprised. There is a lot of physics, engineering, uh, innovation uh, that not just us, our competitors drive. And there are still a large number of people attracted to job satisfaction in terms of having an impact, in terms of what they do. So we have adapted, if you will, uh, we are resilient, knowing that the outflow is going to exist, we just have a constant uh, inflow. So we are constantly searching, we are constantly recruiting, uh, we have a high bar because we cannot have too many people, we have to have the best people. Yep. Uh, so it takes a long time, uh, so we never stop hiring. We never stop searching. We are constantly bringing in. Uh, we are bringing people from around the world. Uh, and with COVID and visa regulations and so on, we have truly gone global. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, if you list home offices as the number of sites, uh, my organization probably has 24 or 25 sites, right? Because we have people in five countries in Europe. Uh, we have people in seven states in the U.S. And to some extent, COVID has made this more possible. I can go hire somebody uh, truly skilled in Spain, in Germany, in London, uh, in Sweden, and not bother about it because we've become accustomed to remote uh, uh, working. So that allows us to go. Uh, do things that we would have. But we've always, we've always faced the reality of people being attracted by larger organizations, but we make it fun. We make it, we uh, have the attraction of innovation and people are still interested in that. Yeah, and that's good. Uh, I love the answer that you said, you know, we take pride in other people stealing our people because that might be, that means they were good. So. <laughs> that, that, that's really good. I like that. Uh, one of the things we have to talk about when we're in, in the optical world is, of course, the Shannon's limit. Uh, could you just very simply explain to people what the Shannon's limit is and, and, and why we talk about it? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, non-technical, you know, because you and I mm -hmm. sit here and talk for a long time on the algorithm. Mm -hmm. But Claude Shannon came up with this notion of how much information you could physically encode into a set of bits and transmit over a network. And as we increase, uh, and, and we've all been trying to get as close to that graph that he drew in terms of how many bits you could encode and transport how long, 
within the constraints of our computational capabilities, the nonlinear impacts and so on. So there are multiple physical and mathematical limitations that we are trying to get to. And the concern has been that we get to a higher and higher modulation. We are uh, and higher and higher borders. We are packing more and more, and we are beginning to reach the mathematical limits of what Claude Shannon defined. And, and over a long time, we've all learned what a brilliant uh, scientist he was um, and, and how true that number is. Uh, the good news is, so far, we worry about reaching Shannon's limit. We have not reached Shannon's limit yet. But I think it will not just be Shannon's uh, limit that forces us to look at different things. I think there are uh, the cost of trying to reach Shannon's limit or, or pack more uh, is, is becoming, the, the economics of it drives, drives us to adapt newer things. So we look at it and say, rather than try theoretically to push closer and closer to Shannon's limit, we can get to other approaches. So, you know, I, I look at uh, this as there was Sonnet. We could have gone to higher and higher rates of Sonnet, but suddenly somebody came up with DWDM and said, hey, I don't have to go increase my rates on a single Sonnet stream. I can actually send multiple streams uh, on a network. Uh, when we looked at uh, probabilistic shaping to get us a higher encoding uh, efficiency, we initially said we are not going to do it because it looked like we would need one trillion transistors to be able to implement it. Uh, until we came up with some nice, neat mathematical tricks that told us, oh, we can actually implement it. You know, each of these computations, as you try to drive the Shannon limit, which is you're trying to get more and more efficiency of how you pack and encode those bits, you start paying a price for computational efficiency and then the nonlinear uh, effects impact the performance of those. So we are already, you know, we, we are transmitting at 64 QAM today. Uh, we start looking at 128 and 256. Yes, we could get higher efficiency, but then other impacts come in and reduce the distance that you can transmit it. So you could probably get closer to Shannon, but you're not going that far. And those trade-offs, I think, are going to force us to look at different, different approaches. Already are looking at people coming up with space division multiplexing, which is a different way of saying, okay, don't worry about getting almost to the limits of Shannon and paying an enormous price. We just use a switch and switch it to a different point. So uh, I would say we, we will strive. I think there is probably one or two more generations we can inch our claw our way closer and closer to Shannon limit of increasing the efficiency of encoding and therefore the rate of transmission, how many bits you can transmit uh, per second and how effectively you can do that. But I think we will figure out other ways, uh, multi-core fibers, space division multiplexing, uh, you know, you go from C to L band to maybe S band. Mm -hmm. uh, we will try all these different approaches to get us more capacity, which at the end of the day is what we all feel worried about Shannon Limit. Yeah, I think that's good. And that's, it feels refreshing on our side to be, to be safe, that we can continue to grow the traffic without... I mean, bandwidth is uh, going to grow <laughs> and there is no way we are going to stop it, right? No, oh, that's really good. One of the cool things I heard the other day, and you mentioned it in the beginning, was that actually you can use fiber cables to detect earthquakes and that type of stuff. Could you just very briefly, what is that all about, you know? Sure. Uh, it's a very exciting field. We are, we are working with a couple of customers on exploring that. 
But let me uh, recall for over the last 10 years, we've all worried about aerial cables. So most people may not realize this, but when there's a lightning storm and lightning uh, lands near a fiber cable that's strung uh, aerially as opposed to being buried underground, uh, that lightning storm can travel down the fiber, create a flux. The flux uh, impacts the transmission characteristics uh, and you suddenly get a hit. And we've had, uh, you know, we, we found this out over a decade ago where customers would come in and say, your, your system failed. And we would scratch our heads and, you know, um, we did a lot of experiments and found out this happens only in summer and this happens only in the Midwest. And we did a, it's almost like a science detective story and figure out it's lightning strikes that are causing it. And therefore, we built in detection capabilities, correction capabilities, fast reaction capabilities, so much so today that a lightning could hit and you will not notice that a lightning strike happened. So all this led us to, uh, you know, the state of polarization, uh, if you will, of the of the transmission characteristics. And we looked at it and said, so if you know the polarization characteristics of the wavelength, you can actually extrapolate something that's happening to the physical fiber plant. And there have been papers by, uh, by a couple of uh, data center uh, engineers, so on, that talks about using measuring the characteristics of the uh, optical signal, seeing the changes in its polarization, for example, and trying to deduce is that because, you know, and you can see what is the speed with which it happens. And you can say, is it a slow characteristics? Somebody is compressing the cable, which means they are likely trying to tap into your optical fiber, or there's a fast response. And you can use the AI techniques to say, if I measured it often enough and I associated it with an earthquake that I read, it's almost as you know very similar to getting uh, signatures for aircraft with radar. If you if you measure them enough, you can say, okay, now I can detect that that's a MiG-29 or a F-16. All right. Uh, and you can do very similar characteristics today. So we are actually engaged. Uh, there are a couple of customers who are absolutely, uh, you know, they, they believe that this is a service they can offer, that you can actually provide uh, several minutes of advance warning that an earthquake is going to happen. You know, the initial work is happening mostly in subsea cables, yep. where you can detect uh, an event in a subsea cable and therefore be able to provide five 10 minutes of warning that a tsunami may happen. Yep. So I think that's where you're going to see. But once we start perfecting that and people start collecting more and more signatures, more and more data lakes, mined for data, uh, you are going to see this used uh, more for terrestrial and it could be everything from earthquakes uh, to buildings getting stressed and so on. So very, very exciting technologies. Yeah, no, that that sounds really, really cool. So I think we can continue to speak forever, but we're nearing yes. the end of the of the of the show here. So, just one final question, you know, if very, very short, you know, what do you see as what do you see this industry going in the next five years? You know, what what's the key things that's going to happen in the next five years? Yeah, I think you're going to see more and more of mathematics in terms of modulation characteristics, uh, AI technologies. You're going to see a lot more emphasis on software driven. Uh, standardization, AI, data mining, so on. 
And you're going to see clearly more and more open systems, the best of breed. I think that is here to stay. Wow. Thank you very much, Parti, for being my guest today. Matthias, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks everyone for listening. We will soon be back with a new guest, so please follow us on Twitter, ConnectivityPod, for updates. Stay tuned until next time.